Hello, everybody. You're listening to the Live and Let Live show. This is attorney Andrew Markintel. Also with me is attorney Mark J. Victor. We're the attorneys for freedom, and we are pumped up to be here and talk about Live and Let Live. What's going on, Mark? You know, the world needs Live and Let Live, Andy. That's what we're doing this show for, and I'm uh, excited to talk about it. I want to give everybody just a little bit of a recap in case you haven't been listening to the Peace Radicals right from the beginning. If you haven't, you should stop what you're doing immediately. Go back to the beginning, episode one, and listen to every second of the show, right? That sounds like a good idea. That sounds like a huge time commitment, Mark. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, look, I, you know, in, in all seriousness, the Live and Let Live movement is the most important thing going on in the entire world. Now, I can defend this, right? I mean... Freedom and peace, like what's more important than freedom and peace for the world? Even if you talk about, say, curing cancer, yeah, that's super important. I wish we could get this done, but still not nearly as important as fermenting freedom around the world and peace around the world. I mean, you could just start with the idea that, you know, there are existential threats that are here now. There are others that are coming, and uh, we're not going to be able to deal with these things appropriately unless we can get our heads around look the law's got to be recalibrated we got to do things differently than we have done them thus we can't afford another war we just can't right imagine a world war at this point uh, we can't afford to have no way to deal with unreasonable people who create substantial threats around the world i mean soon everybody who wants one will have a nuke right every other weapon pretty much People who want them can get them. Soon enough, people will be able to synthesize viruses and other bacteria for bad reasons, to weaponize them. We got to deal with that. Soon enough, we're going to make more and more progress on things like artificial intelligence. I don't know what kind of a risk this is going to pose, but you know, once the cat's out of the bag, the cat's out of the bag. Yes. So the Live and Let Live movement purports to um, uh, have some solutions to some of these problems and get us closer in the right direction towards dealing with them. Why don't you sum up for the new listeners uh, the principle in a nutshell and how it can possibly uh, help solve these uh, new novel and rising problems? Yeah, I mean, pretty much everybody says, uh, yeah, of course I agree with Live and Let Live. I mean, who wouldn't agree with Live and Let Live? And so you can get agreement on that level of course. Uh, but when you start talking about, all right, what does it mean? What does live and let live actually mean? Uh, you get into the weeds a little bit, but I think there are some good answers, right? I mean, um, one thing we know that can't be consistent with live and let live is acting as an aggressor, right? I mean, if I'm hitting you over the head, I'm initiating force against you, I'm stealing your property. I'm certainly not, whatever I'm doing, I am not acting in accordance with the idea of live and let live, right? I'm forcing my will on you. So um, I think it's an easy, very, very small step to, as a first step to say, look, if, if you agree with live and let live, the one thing you got to agree with is it's wrong to be an aggressor. Now, this doesn't mean it's wrong to act in self-defense. It doesn't mean you should be a pacifist. But to be an aggressor, like what's an aggressor? An aggressor is somebody who initiates force, right? Somebody who might punch you in the face, force to a person or force against property, maybe a theft, something like that. Uh, these, you know, these are well-recognized crimes. Most people agree with initiations of force are things that should be outlawed. Not only that, 
initiations of fraud, right? Most people, reason, I would say all reasonable people agree that fraud, that's the kind of thing that violates the live and let live rule. You're being an aggressor. We should outlaw fraud. And then coercion, uh, you know, forcing somebody to do that without actual physical force, but, uh, you know, maybe holding a gun to somebody's head or threatening to hurt uh, their family members or something like this. This is another variety of being an aggressor. So all of these things need to be illegal. And so then there's another category, which we like to call creating a substantial risk of those things, right? I mean, doing something that creates a huge risk to another person, we don't actually have to wait until the harm occurs. This is where self-defense comes from, right? I mean, people who think about self-defense generally understand pretty easily that you don't have to wait until somebody's fist makes contact with your face before you can act in self-defense. Once somebody creates a substantial and imminent risk of doing such a thing, you can hit them first and be justified in doing it. That's what self-defense is about, dealing with other people's substantial risk. So if another person creates a substantial risk, they're violating the live and let live rule, and we should do everything we can to stop them. What you just laid out sounds kind of like the legal side of this, uh, this principle. What about the aspirational values that the principle promotes and uh, really sets it apart as a peace movement? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, compliance with what I just laid out, the live and let live principle, this is good, right? And this is great, actually. If everybody would comply with this, we could get to freedom, right? You'd be in charge of your body, your money, your property, and your time, and we'd have a free society. But, you know, our goals in the Live and Let Live movement are bigger than that. And uh, we're trying to ferment peace around the world. It's a global peace movement. So we first got to get to freedom. If people are initiating uh, force or fraud or coercion against other people. They don't even talk to me about peace yet. But once we get compliance with what we call the live and let live principle, we need more than that to get to peace. We need some aspirational values. And the reason we call them aspirational values because we're not trying to change the law here to force these on people. We're trying to inspire the good, reasonable people of the world to act in ways that are Uh, let's just say open-minded. Open-mindedness towards other human beings is an important value in the live and let live movement. Tolerance of other human beings, right? Uh, Voluntary kindness as contrasted with coerced or forced kindness. We're against that, but voluntary kindness should be encouraged, right? Good people who are reasonable voluntarily act to help other people. We want to encourage people to do that. And a commitment to facts, right? We have a huge problem kind of coalescing, agreeing on what the facts of the world are. We want to be committed to facts. Wherever the facts lead, facts are facts. Things like civility. Let's have civilized conversations with other people, especially when we are in disagreement with them. Things like building high levels of trust with other people. This all builds towards the important values of increasing human happiness while decreasing human suffering. These are the sort of ethical side, the aspirational values of the Live and Let Live movement. Why is uh, proceeding from a principle an important thing to do? And why does this uh, movement and this principle give us a better alternative to what we got right now? 
Well, we don't, we don't proceed from principle right now, and, and this is evident all around us, right? You might say, um, for example, let me pick on the Republicans for a moment. What do the Republicans stand for? Well, I don't know. At the moment, it's whatever Donald Trump says, right? I mean, there used to be a time, for example, when uh, Republicans thought free trade was important, the free market, and they were anti-tariffs and regulation and things like that. Although, uh, as we recall, during the Trump administration, Donald Trump decided that the Republican Party should be in favor of tariffs and regulations and things like that. So there's no principle that sort of they emanate from. Yeah, they talk about conservative values, whatever those are, and smaller government. Of course, we never seem to get smaller government or more freedom from the Republicans. And then the other side, the Democrats, they're all over the place, right? I mean, I don't know where all of this deplatforming stuff comes and microaggressions. They used to be, they used to value things like free speech. But today, uh, you know, you have the speech police on the left who are uh, constantly uh, searching for somebody who might say something, oh my God, politically incorrect, or at least not in lockstep with what is uh, what the left determines is the right thing to say, the proper thing to say. And then they go around trying to deplatform people. So, look, if you don't have a principle, then you can't proceed in an orderly way from a principle in a way that makes sense. So, you have to first come up with principles and then you derive rules, sub rules, from those important principles. Excellent. And with that wonderful recap, Mark, I got to tell you, I am excited for our guest today. We've got somebody on the line. It is the sheriff of Santa Cruz County here in Arizona. It's Sheriff David Hathaway. And uh, for those of our listeners who don't know, Santa Cruz County in Arizona is the southernmost county um, around Nogales. Um, It's a significant port of entry. It's the biggest port of entry uh, in Arizona from Mexico. Um, And Sheriff David Hathaway has many uh, important insights and I think really cool things to say about the Live and Let Live movement. I believe you reached out to him, right, and talked to him about this. Yeah, you know, Sheriff Hathaway, to my knowledge, is the very first elected official who subscribes to the Live and Let Live principle. So this is really exciting. Let's, let's, Let's get Dave in here. Sheriff, how are you doing today? Excellent. Good to talk to you, Mark and Andy. I've talked to Mark before. Good to meet you, Andy. And yeah, I'm really excited about this movement. And if I could just start out by saying some things I really like about the live and let live concept. First of all, the way it's phrased, there's a complete idea within the phrase live and let live. And if you're talking to people and you say something like, I'm a progressive, I'm a conservative, I'm left wing, I'm right wing, I'm socialist, fascist, communist, all the different things you can say. Um, the, the, the live and let live phrase actually contains within it the very simple definition of what it, would, what it really means to, um, you know, to allow other people to live their lives, to not have the desire to control someone else's life. Um, it, it's contained within the phrase. Now, even if you say something more in the weeds like, I'm a Christian, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Jew. Uh, Even that, you know, contains, you know, uh, there's assumptions, presumptions built into those terms. Like, you know, like, let's just say if you tell somebody, I'm a conservative, that may mean in their head that you're pro-war, that you want to go to the Middle East and bomb a bunch of people in the Middle East. It may mean that you're a certain religion. Or if you say you're a Christian, there's different brands of Christianity. There's brands of Christianity that think everybody is totally, totally depraved, meaning they must 
they must be immoral continually in their life. They must, you know, lie, steal, cheat, kill, commit fraud, commit, you know, unwarranted violence against other people. So even a word like Christian is kind of, there's a lot of, uh, there's there's assumptions built into that of, of what that means. So I really like saying the phrase live and let live, the full phrase live and let live, and I've done that multiple times in interviews as I've been an elected official. It just so happens that the last two months, there's a lot of interest in the border. There's a lot of interest in the new administration. And media outlets can't get answers from the feds uh, because, you know, they're not elected officials. So the local heads of the federal agencies, they have public information officers in Washington and Phoenix, and they're not necessarily going to answer policy-type questions for reporters, but it so happens unexpectedly that I have been besieged by ABC, NBC, CBS, PBS, uh, Fox News, uh, foreign media outlets uh, from France and Turkey of all places and China that have come here with their TV crews. Uh, and they're not really so much interested in what I do as a sheriff, but where I'm positioned along the border. And and they want to kind of gauge what the Biden administration is going to do with border type issues. Um, and I have found, you know, opportunities to segue into the live and let live philosophy. And that doesn't immediately raise people's ire. You know, if you say something like progressive or conservative, they immediately kind of shut down mentally and they don't want to listen to the rest of you have to mm -hmm. say. But like, as Mark pointed out, who can be against the idea of live and let live? So it's kind of what it, the way I use it is a way to sidestep a lot of these loaded terms that have, you know, assumptions built into them. What does it mean to be conservative? What does it mean to be liberal, progressive, left-wing, right-wing? Those things are kind of ambiguous terms. And I think it cuts right to the main point. And I was telling Mark the other day or maybe on an email that I really liked. I saw a youngster wearing a T-shirt that says, freedom means me defending your right to do things that I don't like. So that's what live and let live Beautiful. says. And I think that's what the aspirational values are all about. You know, it's not just let's all get walled off into our own little worlds and just get offended at every little thing our neighbor does. But as long as he stays within the constraints of his property rights and I stay within the constraints of my property rights, you know, okay. But if I sense with any of my five senses, him doing something that somehow offends me, meaning somehow I've been impacted by that. Well, then I'm going to go use the full extent of the law to try to retaliate against him. And, you know, I think the aspirational values say we're going beyond just the, you know, what you would say is a liberty-driven society or a freedom-focused society. We aspire to actually tolerate things that impact us in, let's say, a minimal way and to live with them because we would hope that others would do the same for us. So just to start off with what live and let live means to me and how I use it, it's mainly an expression of my personal philosophy on life. Now, when I'm an elected official, I'm part of the executive branch, so I can't immediately have the flexibility to undo things that are handed to me by, say, like the, the courts of Arizona. Like you, Mark, both you and Andy are officers of the courts of Arizona and, you know, of the, the federal court system. And I am as well. I'm an officer of the court. But when you interact with the courts, you're more in the deciding phase, the uh, dispute resolution phase. And you can articulate the live and let live principle in the courtroom to help figure out, um, you know, which way a case should go. But by the time it gets to me as the elected sheriff in the executive branch, 
I don't have the flexibility that you have in the courtroom. In the courtroom, you can make an argument based on evidence, on statutory law, case law, common law, conflicting witness statements, or how the evidence was handled. There's a lot of ways you can mount a, a defense, or you can decide to make no defense because, let's say, in a criminal case, the government has the burden of proof and they haven't met the burden of proof. So you have a lot of leeway on creative arguments because you're in the decision phase of what live and let live means with that set of facts. But by the time it gets to me, it, uh, let's say a prisoner has been remanded to the custody of the sheriff and I have a big jail here that I preside over. At that point, even if I don't like the fact that there's a victimless crime there, there's not a lot I can do there because I will be found in contempt of court if I don't do the job that I've elected to do in the executive branch. And like, I think John Adams is the one that's uh, this saying is attributed to him, we are a government of laws, not a government of men. So if I start acting too much like a totalitarian tyrant, a dictator, a monarch, then I've stepped outside the boundaries of what the executive branch can do. But I do have some latitude on, on things I can do and how I prioritize what the personnel do in the sheriff's office. But before I get too long-winded, I'll give it back to you. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> Sheriff, I want to tell you, I think if you were here, uh, you would have seen a. You brought a tear to Andy's eye when you <laughs> talked about. Uh, you talked about. Look, freedom is about defending the rights of other people to do things you do not agree. Mark, with. the only reason I brought a tear to my eyes because I was thinking how much we need to buy the rights to that T-shirt <laughs> and how much money we could make slap and live and let live logos all. Over. It's beautiful. Wasn't man. that just awesome? I mean, to to really for somebody to say that that what that communicates to me in a nutshell is this is somebody who really understands what freedom is about. I talk to groups all the time. Like for example, I talked to a uh, used to talk to the pro-marijuana groups. Of course, now the argument is all but one, at least in the state level here. Um, and they were all for legalizing marijuana uh, because they smoked marijuana and they, they want to do what they want to do. This isn't a freedom position. I've always said it's the person who doesn't smoke marijuana. Even better, the person who thinks this is a terrible idea to smoke marijuana and who would try to convince other competent adults to not smoke marijuana, for that person to say, I think it should be legal because I recognize that other competent adults get to do things that not only I don't do, but that I think are a bad idea, but still don't violate the rights of other people. This really is the essence of freedom. And so I really commend you for, for putting it that way. It's probably uh, the most shorthanded way to say to me, Mark, I really understand what the live and let live principle is about. And just to chime in too, your point about not being able to overstep the bounds that you have as an elected official is very well taken. Um, you know, it's the the idea is that elected officials have to, a job to do that the people have decided, and we have division of powers in this country for a reason that we all kind of have structured our government in such a way. Um, and you know. Yeah, and the, Oh, go ahead. Yeah, and I think there's a misperception that only the judicial branch, you talk about the balance of powers, only the judicial branch upholds the Constitution or interprets the Constitution or defends the Constitution, and it's absolutely wrong. You know, it's like a triangle, the three corners of the triangle, the judicial branch, executive branch, and legislative branch. Like, it's up to me just as much to nullify an unconstitutional law, or it would be up to a legislative branch to, to, un, to nullify an unconstitutional uh, judicial ruling, ruling as, as well. Like, um, 
let's talk about the Constitution. I swear an oath to uphold the Constitution of the U.S. and the Constitution of the state of Arizona. Now, there's things that are very cut and dried, like the Second Amendment says that you cannot infringe on a person's right to keep and bear arms. And infringe means infringe. And there's a lot of things that I think right now have already been infringed upon. But now, in that area, I have sworn allegiance to a higher law, a higher law than a judicial ruling, like if a superior court judge or a legislative entity tells me something like go get somebody's guns, go seize their guns, well, that I can, I can nullify that order, order on constitutional grounds because that conflicts with the second, second Amendment. But there's other things like during 2020, there's things that I saw that were clearly unconstitutional that I would not enforce. For example, when people were told they couldn't get together with their friends and houses of worship, you know, uh, closed down because people were afraid to gather with, you know, more than 10 people. Um, now, I clearly see in the First Amendment to the Constitution that we have freedom of assembly and freedom of religion. So, you know, if, uh, if a local, as we have here in my area, a local, you know, a board of supervisors, a mayor, a city council, a governor says, you cannot assemble with the, your fellow residents of the state of Arizona. If the government says, I'm making, I'm making some sort of a ruling or a curfew or a restriction, or, you know, you can't get together with 10 or more people. Well, to me, that violates the First Amendment, freedom of assembly. So I can see that law or a judicial ruling as being unconstitutional. And I don't have to wait for a court to tell me that it's unconstitutional. It's not like as a, a head of a executive branch law enforcement agency that I should just try to control people in any way that I can and then let the courts decide whether my control of them is warranted. Like, I have no desire to run people's lives. I don't have the, uh, what Augustine called the libido dominandi, like the lust to rule, to lust to govern, the lust to, to control other people's lives. But, you know, I can see things that are unconstitutional. Now, let me give you another example. I stuck my foot in my mouth during my campaign. Uh, we've had a, the same sheriff here for 28 years. He set the record for the longest serving sheriff in Arizona. And after he retired um, and I decided to run, everybody and their brother wanted to, wanted to run. There was like six candidates. So we had a, a candidate forum where the presiding superior court judge was the moderator. He was the one that asked the questions. And this was kind of in the early phases of, you know, 2020 of all the virus issues and the virus panic and whatnot. So um, this county and our, our principal city in this town had just passed mask ordinances and social distance ordinances. Um, now they, they, uh, they went uh, with each candidate uh, they kind of rotated randomly of who got the next question. And the first candidate would get two minutes and all the others would get one minute to answer that question. Now it came to the issue of the mask and somebody had submitted the question via Facebook, like um, what would you do if you're elected sheriff and somebody refuses to wear a mask and you go up and you talk to them and you educate them and they still say, I'm not wearing the mask. What do you do? Now I was the last of the six candidates, but as they went down the line, Every one of, one of them tried to hem and haw and not commit, you know, the political type answer and, and I would educate them. And then rightfully the moderator, a superior court judge would interrupt and say, no, 
I'm, I'm requiring you to answer this question. The guy says, I'm not going to put on the mask. What do you do? Now, every single one of them um, said, I would cite the guy or I would arrest the guy. Mm. I would charge the guy. And then when they got to me, this became a huge issue in the local media down here that um, I started talking about that some people, once again, live and let live. Some people may have a concern about mask wearing, that there's research out there showing that um, there's mold and bacteria colonies that build up on the mask, and then you're ingesting that stuff when you breathe in. You're breathing in the mold and bacteria. There's the potential, you know, um, hypoxia and, you know, carbon dioxide poisoning, other issues like the lint, the loose lint on the mask that you ingest that or if you breathe that all day long and it can lead to fibrosis in, in the lungs. Um, and that there had been incidences already that early on of people operating heavy machinery or vehicles or doing things where you need the, the higher order functions of your brain, um, where people had gotten lethargic and they hadn't reacted as quickly as they can, could in certain situations and had injured themselves. And, you know, I contemplate this and I say, what if you have something like a jury? And if you require all the jurors to wear a mask as they are down here in my county, um, this would become a defense on an, on an appeal in the future to say, well, look, you know, um, it has shown that their, their oxygen, oxygen intake is limited somewhat, maybe at least enough to where they want to get out of there and render a quick verdict to get out of the courtroom out to where they can breathe fresh air. And it may also be diminishing somewhat their higher order brain functions where they're not reasoning the case through reasoning the facts reasoning the law reasoning the evidence to the to the extent that oh i just could. saw a light bulb and, turn over mark's head with a new appellate issue yeah, that it, we can bring <laughs> <laughs> and this this could become an issue if a jury as they are in this county are required to wear a mask while being impaneled in a jury and there is plenty of research showing out there showing that that this could be an issue that it could diminish higher order uh, brain function but now let me get back to that that during my campaign when I was answering these questions. So I mentioned that individuals may have health concerns, once, once again, live and let live. And there, there may be other societal concerns too, you know, uh, about the whole thing. Uh, and then I started citing constitutional issues about the First Amendment, you know, and freedom of, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, where people should be able to come together and talk and whatnot if, if they want. But, you know, that blew up on me and the, uh, the local newspaper here it set the record on the number of most comments on their online edition. They typically get no comments or one or two, but this had over 300 comments. And they tried to crucify me on that issue. Like, look at there's this candidate, there's Hathaway here who's saying, he's saying, well, people, I'm not anti-mask. You can wear a mask if you want, but people may have concerns about the health risk of their mask. But let's, let's fast forward to where I am right now. That mask mandate still is still there, but I can't find a constitutional issue for the mask. It's not First Amendment freedom of assembly. It's not, you know, right to keep and bear arms. It's not uh, Fourth Amendment, you know, unreasonable search and seizure. You know, it's not freedom of religion. So how do how do I handle that? You know, with the live and let live thing. How do I handle that? If a government makes a, a law that I think, let's say that I consider that to be an unreasonable intrusion, you just tell everybody, no matter what, you have to wrap cloth around around your face. No matter what, that we have a, a virus that is, you know, 99.7% of the people that get it and survive it, and those that don't were old and they were in a actuarial portion of their life where they were in their 
most of them in their 80s where they were, you know, you know, would have died at approximately that age anyway. Well, so what I do on that is I don't have a constitutional objection, but I, I can still prioritize the the uh, the enforcement actions of the of the patrol deputies in this county. And my prior priorities are two things. Like every other of the 3,000 elected sheriffs in the U.S., my priorities are violent crime and property crime. So that is the priority that I give the deputies when they go out to enforce the law. And the mask wearing is not a priority. So we're not going to get to that. Neither, you know, so, so you know, it, it, it's like in the day to day course of things, we're not going to get to, um, you know, get to mask wearing when we're, we're already, you know, have a limited number of officers to cover this county. And so my priorities are violent crime and property crime. And, you know, kind of while, while I'm on the topic of the latitude that I have as an elected official, there's a lot of things I'm boxed in on that I just can't, I can't make a difference on those things. I'm just, I have to do what, what a judge says for me to do. But like, here's another thing, for example, when I came into this position, this was the last jurisdiction in Arizona that still had a ticket quota. The actual deputies were evaluated based on the number of traffic tickets that they turned in. Ugh. Now, this, Mark, if you're listening to potential defenses, you probably already know this. This has been ruled by the courts to be illegal, that you can't have a ticket, ticket quota. Why? Because a defense attorney could say, um, you know, this officer knew he had to turn in so many tickets that shift. So who's to say he didn't just give my client a ticket, not because it was warranted, but because he had to meet his quota. So I got rid of that the first day I was in office. It's right. already been ruled illegal by the courts. And that's that's the kind of thing that I can I can scrutinize things and say this thing that we're doing here definitely is either unconstitutional or illegal or it doesn't fit my enforcement priorities, which is like violent crime and property crime. You know, Sheriff, I, uh, I've been fighting this, uh, this case for a more free society for many, many years now. And uh, one of the criticisms that I hear from people who are on uh, the freedom train is, you know, hey, look, uh, you know, there are things that you are currently doing that, uh, you know, are, are sort of violate the principle here and there, right? I mean, there are countless things that we all do um, that you might say, you know, in a free world, we wouldn't have, like, for example, you know, as a criminal defense lawyer, I find myself sometimes in court arguing, let's say for somebody who has transported, uh, some large amount of a uh, green plant material that's called marijuana across, you know, the state or something, they're looking at years and years in prison. I may find myself, uh, arguing for the lowest term of a prison sentence. I might say, hey, judge, uh, you know, only give him five years instead of the 15 years that you could give him. Does this violate the principle? Sure it does. He shouldn't be getting any time for this. This is a, a you know, there was no force, there's no fraud, there's no coercion, there's no substantial risk. This shouldn't be a crime. And yet, uh, I find myself in court arguing for a lower term in prison. Okay, this is because we aren't currently living in a free society, right? Do I send yeah, money? Exa exactly. Right. And do if I, I could give you another example of that, like um, I'm in a tax-funded position, and we we all know that taxation is not voluntary. You know, it's robbery, it's theft. It's not a a price signal coming from the market saying we need more security services, or we need 
less security services. So yeah, I have those same kind of personal dilemmas that you have, Mark, because we aren't at that point yet. And so we kind of resolve those within our own mind. How can I make the best of this? How can I make this most fit the live and let live concept? Like for me, for example, on that, I try to give away as much of my salary as I can and give it away in the form of, you know, to, to local taxpayers. Now, let's just say I, I just said, you know what? I'm not going to take the salary at all. Well, well, guess what? That just has another funded slot where somebody else will be hired, you know, that may use unwarranted, you know, duress against the citizens of this county. So like, yeah, like I can see you struggling with that. Like, why am I arguing for a five-year sentence? Because I know they're going to put this guy away for 10 or 20 years under some minimum mandatory sentencing structure in the federal courts or something like that. Why am I encouraging him to plead a lesser thing? I totally get that dilemma, and I face those kind of dilemmas, too. You gave the example earlier of having to put nonviolent drug offenders in your jail. Exactly. Like, now, what would happen is, Andy... If I didn't do that and I refused to do that and a judge found me in contempt of court and then I lost this position, what what would that result in? It, It would probably result in somebody occupying my position that had less of the live and let live concept applied to their daily life or applied to the operation of the sheriff's office. So, you know, you're exactly right. And I just look in my personal life and in my scope of control of things that I can legitimately control, not aspire to control. I I could aspire to, to use more force. Unfortunately, I can name several sheriffs in Arizona that do what I call the doom and gloom, the sky is falling, the crisis style of campaigning. Now, my style of campaigning was the opposite of that. You can either choose to articulate a crisis, which is the standard formula for government power in any area, but no matter what you're talking about, if you're talking about foreign countries or you know, talking about the environment or talking about anything you want to talk about, the, the, the formula for government success is to articulate to a crisis, a crisis that may not even exist, but to articulate that crisis and present yourself as the solution. I can name other sheriffs in Arizona that are continually pounding the desk, scaring everybody, screaming and yelling and saying, there is this crisis and I'm going to save you from this crisis. How? By expanding his power, by becoming more authoritarian. And I have no desire to run anybody's life. Like I mentioned, Augustine describing, and I think a book of his called The City of God, the libido dominandi, this lust to rule, this lust to govern, this lust to run other people's lives for them. Now, I do the opposite. I do a lot of positive messaging. I would challenge you to try to look, go look through all my campaign ads, all my media, TV, television, newspaper uh, appearances during my campaign, and see if there was anything where I articulated a crisis that I want to run your life. Oh, there's this danger and this threat, and I'm going to save you for it. I did the exact opposite, and I didn't know if I would be elected, and I was elected by a landslide. I had four times as many votes as the guy that came in second place. Why? By giving out positive messaging that I want to help people, that I want people to have better lives. I was always happy, and I was always upbeat, and even though a lot of my campaign happened in 2020 and also halfway through 2019 because I started early – it was all positive. It was me and my wife out there knocking on doors, writing hand, handwritten letters for people, asking about their families, how they were doing, having compassion on them. 
And that positive messaging worked for me. I never used the sky is falling or there's a crisis. And people want me to do that, especially people in law enforcement. They're like, you need to get out there and tell people what a threat, you know, X, Y, Z is, how all of this is a real threat and how we need to crack down on this thing. And I, I refuse to do it. And it has it has worked for me because I have no desire to, to run people's lives. And along that line, if I can give another little anecdote, this is something I knew was going to happen within my first two weeks of office. I started office on January 1st, and I knew that this mandatory vaccine thing was going to be right around the corner. And I studied up on it from the, the legal basis, you know, what, it, what informed consent means, the legal principle of informed consent. And sure enough, Two weeks into January, I got a phone call from the county attorney, and this is what the county attorney said. David, um, do you want us to write up legal documents to make vaccinations mandatory for everybody that works in the sheriff's office as a condition of their employment? Now, fortunately, I had studied up on this and using applying the live and let live principle. I, I, I knew the right legal terminology, the way to respond, and I told the county attorney, I said, you know, I'm going to abide by the legal principle of informed consent where each individual analyzes the risks and the benefits of getting vaccinated and makes that decision for themselves. And the response was, okay, well, that makes it easier for us. And that was the <laughs> end of that phone call. Now, now, guess what? Every other, I was the first agency, the first executive branch agency that was contacted because they have a tier system in Arizona for the vaccinations like 1A, 1B, 1C, and law enforcement due to contact with the public was one of the highest tiers. So all the other police departments and the fire departments were waiting to see what I said and waiting to see what my policy was. And I think they would have fallen in line with whatever I said if I said, yes, it's mandatory. And then the county attorney wrote up a principle that would be shared with the chief of police and the fire chiefs and everybody else because they were all also in that tier to receive the vaccinations. But since I said that, Guess what? The, uh, two weeks after that, one of the elected board of supervisors called me all angry and said, David, what do you think you're doing? Do you realize at the Nogales Police Department, more than half of their officers have refused to take the vaccine? Do you realize that? that and, and I'm like, you know what? And then he says, how many people in your office have taken it? And I go, well, you know what? Um, I've researched the American with Disabilities Act and the HIPAA law, both federal laws, you know, the health, health insurance uh, portability and affordability act they both say that i cannot inquire, inquire about people's health decisions i cannot inquire i cannot statistically keep track compel them to do anything or ask them uh you know why they made their decisions or what decisions they've made on their personal health and those are both federal laws and so when i did that now everyone else has adopted that position including our our county manager um, and other heads of, of local agencies here and it was because i took that little step to apply the live and let live rule. And I was prepared for that. And that, that there's gonna be this thing, do we have vaccine passports? Does everyone have, to, everyone have to prove they've been vaccinated before they can function in society? And I thought, this is one of those little areas where I have enough latitude in this area to counter something that is you know, totalitarian, that is very you know, uh, control oriented. And I could do that little piece as an elected official and it had, it, it made waves, it had ramifications, and it sent it set legal pre precedent here in my area. Just another little example that popped into my head of how I had latitude in my in my in my duties and in the policies that I set for my agency.
Wow, just, you know, amazing to hear an elected official, a sheriff, and we're talking to Sheriff David Hathaway of Santa Cruz County, who's the current elected official uh, presiding as the sheriff of Santa Cruz County, talking like this. What do you think about that, Andy? Oh, I got to tell so you made so many important points just Incredible. now, so many important points. Um, one of which, uh, you know, and I, I like the reference to Augustine with the libido dominandi. Um, but think about how many politicians nationwide used this last year and used the COVID crisis as um, as an opportunity to seize as much power as possible, right? And the, the, it's it's limitless. Where it's just this this um, need to dominate other people and need to control other people. We saw countless examples of that, and I think it's great that you are doing everything you can to resist that urge. In fact. You know, I, I had seen stories from across the country. There was a pretty prominent one that occurred in California that made national news where some sheriffs were standing up to the governors and saying, nope, not in not in my county. I'm not going to be enforcing the no congregating uh, laws and the face mask wearing. And uh, insofar as we're able to resist that or deprioritize that, we're going to resist it. And, um, you know, I, I think it's very impressive and um um, that you're doing that down there, Sheriff. And another wonderful um, point that I think you made that I think is actually really, really important in the development of a new movement like Live and Let Live is the idea of incremental steps, right? I, I want to anticipate the argument of people saying, well, hold on, you know, people like the sheriff claim to be Live, live and Let Live and they're holding nonviolent drug offenders or attorneys like Mark Victor claim to be against the drug war and pro Live and Let Live, but they're arguing for prison time, even as a mitigated sentence. And I think the, the idea we need to take from this is that anything that we can do in our own spheres of influence, even if it's incremental, even if it's, you know, realistically, it can't just be a switch that changes overnight. If we can do whatever we can in our own lives, in our own positions of power insofar as they are, to advance freedom in the right direction, I think that's how we get people on board with this movement. I'm very impressed, Sheriff. Yeah. I, I think and, we... And, you know, and sure, you know, we can anticipate problems down the road, and it's, it's not a crime to anticipate problems. It's fun to talk about those things, about implementation. And I know I've listened to all the podcasts of the Peace Radicals, you know, and uh, you know, then there's been interesting devil's advocate type points made. And I think it's it's fun and useful to do that. And I can see and I also listened to your uh, podcast interview with Tom Woods, Mark, and I know he posts some things, too. You know, and it's fun to think about those things, but we shouldn't be <clears throat> defeatist when we do that. But I can I can like right now say say some things like, um, you know, if you have some of the great writers about freedom, like uh Frederick Bastiat and Hans Hermann Hoppe and, and von Mises, they've all, they've talked about the tendency of governments to like to, to put people into groups and to use the term society as an actor. And both Bastiat and, and Hans Hermann Hoppe both said, any talk about society uh, being an actor is meaningless. Only individuals take action. You know, only individuals decide voluntarily, either voluntarily or involuntarily, uh, to take action. So when you start speaking on behalf of society and you see that's the risk I run, Mark and Andy, as being an elected official and making proclamations on behalf of society. If I say something like the people of Santa Cruz County want this or the people of Santa Cruz County deserve that, then I'm encroaching into this collective group philosophy. Like, for example, Bastiat said, 
that he used an analogy of a gardener. He said governments throughout history have always tried to sculpt people into groups like a gardener will sculpt hedges to make them into different shapes and groups. He said uh, the state has done that throughout history. Like they'll try to say men versus women, races, you could try to put races at odds with each other, religions at odds with each other, ethnicities at odds with each other. And then once they kind of put people into groups, they act like they speak on behalf of that group. I'm now speaking on behalf of this oppressed group over here to express their grievance against this other group. And once you start doing that, once you start speaking as a collective or acting like you represent a collective or a group, there's no longer what I like the word price signals because that there's no longer the market signals, the price signals of is this really demanded by the individuals out there? And sure, you can look at what all individuals want as an aggregate, and you say, as an aggregate, people must like iPods because there's a lot more iPods than there used to be. You know, as an aggregate, people must like this. And what is it? It is a, is a sum total of individual actions, but you can't make the mistake of saying society wants this and I speak for society. So, you know, I always remind myself that I'm just an individual and I apply live and let live to my life. And just like these, these people have said, like Hoppe said, you know, any talk of society as an actor is meaningless, only individuals act. So that's just kind of, that's one of those potential problem areas for, for any, any system of government that's trying to revert back to more of a free voluntary approach to things once it's a collective and once it's funded as a collective and once you especially if you use force to extract tax dollars from people to to create a structure a legislative structure a judicial structure an executive branch structure who's to say that that structure would even exist if individuals were allowed to uh you know apply their own resources towards things that they valued. Maybe they would have a lot more security in their life if it was market-based and based on price signals, or maybe they would have a lot less security. Maybe there'd be a lot less security roaming the streets. We don't really know if we don't honor the individual and their price signals. So that's just to talk in the realm of problems or potential objections. Yeah, like Mark, like you said, you exist in that structure now as a defense attorney, and you may recommend a five-year sentence, even though it pains you to do that. And, you know, I'm an elected sheriff, and I see, like, um, people should not look up to me. You know, they should not, like, just... Uh, well, that's not going to happen, like, Sheriff. Let me just stop you right there. That is not yeah. going to happen. you got to be one of the more impressive elected officials that I have ever heard speak, ever, um, and, and you, you really get it and you understand it and we're lucky to have you and I hope we get more and more elected officials just like you. You've made so many good points, hard to respond to all of them. Um, but yeah, this issue about sort of generalizing, overgeneralizing and treating people as groups, I'm at war with this idea right now. This is something we need to really think about carefully, especially when we're into the issue of, you know, race relations. And I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but we're talking about white people or black people. They're, this is not sort of a monolithic group, right? We need to think about people in terms of, of individuals. That's how we need to, it's individuals who act. And by the way, I'm really glad you brought up Bastiat, uh, you know, Frederick Bastiat's book, The Law. Let me just put a little plug in there. If you haven't read that, really short, easy read about legalized plunder. 
uh, that book really had a lot of influence on me. And so thanks so much for bringing that up. I, you know, I wanted to push you on an issue um, a little bit. We talked about the whole mask mandate thing, and I really like how you dealt with that. But of course, this is government action, and government action is different than private action. And so I want to ask you uh, your thoughts. What if, uh, what if I decided, you know, as the owner of the Attorneys for Freedom law firm, that, you know what, I just, uh, I like masks, and uh, I'm a very, very low-risk kind of guy. I'm not willing to tolerate any risk. And because I'm a private business, I want to make it as a condition of employment that everybody who works here at the firm should have to wear a mask, and everybody who comes in to visit the firm should have to wear a mask. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you should have the absolute right to do that. The problem is with that is there's the perception now that a lot of private businesses have done that, and they have not done that. Like here in the city of Nogales and in Santa Cruz County, they're their order on the mask mandate and the social distancing thing, it includes in it a provision that says you cannot open your restaurant or your retail store or any business unless you put a sign on the doorway saying masks are required in this facility. And they actually have a little template, a mask, that, a sign that you can print out that says that. So there's a lot of, I heard, I've heard that on a lot of other freedom podcasts that, you know, I think there's the assumption that there's a lot of businesses out there that don't want anybody to come in unless they wear a mask. But this has been for multiple industries. This has been made a requirement by the government. And a lot of people haven't read the fine print on these mask mandates, but it says that if you want to open your business, you have to put a sign on the door that says social distancing, at least six feet. You have to put a sign on the door that says masks are, are required. And if I can segue into another related thing of homeowners associations, the same thing, like if there's an HOA and with, uh, with you know, the, the market, there's enough market demand for an HOA that has restrictions, then fine, that should flourish. But there's a misperception there, well, there as well. Most people don't know that to create a subdivision in the U.S., um, th that most loans are FHA or VA loans, and both the FHA rules and the VA rules says that a subdivision has to have an HOA. If you make a new subdivision, it's a requirement in order for people to qualify for an FHA loan to buy property in that neighborhood. That new neighborhood has to have an HOA. So you can assume that a lot of these HOAs have sprung into being because there's a demand for them, but there's kind of like a there, there's a lie behind that. Like, obviously, if people, if a private group of, you know, individuals, homeowners want to get together and say, everyone has to mow their lawn to this height, you can't have a junky car in your driveway, and you, know, you can't have a TV antenna on their roof. If they really believe that, if it was a purely private creation, yeah, then HOAs would either shrink or expand to meet the, the market need. But what I've known, the HOAs I've experienced, they have been sources of contention, little tire, little tire, petty tyrants that want to be the president of the homeowner association, or they want to be on the board of directors, and they want to be a policeman and go out there and tell people what to do and control people's lives. So yeah, if it's a real market creation, Mark, if you do that on your attorneys for freedom office, because you believe in that, fine. But all these signs you're seeing out there, almost every one of them is because they have read that mask mandate and they know they're not allowed to open and they will be shut down. A lot of these food service establishments down here, it has happened. They will be shut down if that sign is not on the door. Yeah, totally outrageous. Required sign on the door. I think it's important to make the point that 
uh, you know, to live and let live doesn't really take a position on masks or on homeowners associations or on marijuana or on guns or any of these things. It's it's really exactly. about it's about who gets to make the decision. That's the important question. Right. And so the issue yeah. here, I think the issue that you're raising is that we don't need a one size fits all government mandated every business shall or every business shall not. I mean, whose business is it? Why can't the business owner make the decision? And then whose face is it? If it's your face and you don't want to wear a mask and somebody has a business that says you have to come in with a mask, well, you have the right not to come in, right? And the same can be said about homeowners associations. The issue isn't do you like homeowners associations or do you dislike homeowners? Are they good or are they bad? The question is, Who's making the decision? Shouldn't the people who live in the community make the decision, or really more specifically, the developer who's getting ready to develop the property to subdivide it, make the decision about whether or not there should be a homeowners association? Freedom is not about making any of these particular decisions on your own for everybody. Freedom is about making these decisions yourself for your own body, your own property, your own money, your time, your business, your home, those kinds of issues. So I think that's a very, very important point, and I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, you can presume what society would look like based on what you see around you, and you think, well, I guess that's what people want, but it may not be what they want. They may want less of that or they may want more of that. But just because it's a private business or a private home and you look at it and you go, well, private property, I guess that's what those people want. But sometimes you have to you know, look behind the curtain and see were they compelled to do that? Were they compelled to either restrict their activities or expand their activities beyond what, what they would have? And once again, I like, my, I like the term uh, price signals, you know, because that directly feels people vote with their dollars and they get more of what they want and they get less of what they don't want. And then you have a more pure expression of freedom if you honor people's ability to direct their assets, direct their wealth towards things they like and deprive them uh, towards other people like some business owner that's that's not providing good service, you know. And, and you know, if you look at things like the, the Rosa Parks thing, bus laws and things like that, people assume that was a failure of private business. But in almost every one of those cases, it was a local law in the South about saying black people sit in the back of the, of the bus. And if it was purely market driven, those bus owners you know, wouldn't have just decided, hey, we're not going to make the money that could be made by better serving our black customers. They would have chosen to expand their service to fit the market. But you know, people rarely point that out, that it wasn't just prejudiced individual business owners. It was local ordinances mm-hmm. that made those segregation type things, you know, those requirements and not just a racist populace. Once again, back to the Bastiat thing of creating groups and talking about you're defending this part of society or that part of society. The market would have provided those solutions and would have served the public, um, you know, to the extent that people wanted their service. And those things like the Rosa Parks situation was actually not this or some racist bus company, but it was a, a local law that was requiring the bus company to act in a racist manner. Very good point. Uh, Sheriff, with just a uh, few minutes left here, uh, maybe uh, I can ask you a question that you're uh, particularly well equipped to answer, uh, given your position. 
um, as the southernmost uh, sheriff in the southernmost county of Arizona. Uh, what does a live and let live border policy look like? Um, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast the Biden administration came a knocking to consult with you on uh, on what you think should change, if anything. What's what is? How do you bring live and let live to uh, to border? You know, I mainly. Andy, I dodge that question when when people ask me that, and, and here's how I dodge it. I say that is a federal issue, and it is, right. and the federal officers in this county here outnumber the local officers 30 to 1, and all those things. There's a, a, a Borders and Boundary Commission that decides about, you know, the border barriers and fund those type of things, and then maybe a president like Trump expands the funding to include military funding for things like that, and then they have decided to stop processing claims for for immigration during 2020. And so there's a big backlog of people. They won't even let people get in the line for that. And you know what? I I haven't thought that through fully. I'm so busy on saying that that's a federal issue when people ask me that. I will go tour the border on that. But just to kind of maybe make it a little more problematic for your thought experiment there, Andy, like when I was having a French news crew here a few weeks ago and I was driving around in a marked unit down by the border because they wanted to see the border like everybody does. And so I was mic'd up and everything. And then as I was walking along the border fence for all this, you know, ugly concertina wire that makes it look like a war zone, even though our crime stats here are lower in my county than they are in Tucson or Phoenix. Very safe community, but people think we live in a war zone. Like if I go up to Tucson or Phoenix and people say, where are you from? And, and, and I say, no, gals, and they start whispering and saying, do you have running gun battles go through your backyard? It's like, no, it's like very peaceful uh, environment. But anyway, back to the situation. I was with the news crew uh, just last month. And I was talking to a gentleman, and I was all mic'd up, and they were having the camera and doing a ride-along thing. And I said, uh, hey, uh, how's it going? And he goes, well, I'm waiting for my wife. And he was standing half a block from the border fence, just staring at the fence, waiting for his wife. And then uh, and I said, hey, do you mind if we go up and approach when you talk to her? And we did. And he goes up and talks to his wife through the holes in the fence. They'd been separated for years. She had lost her documents. And then there's the, the there's no one can even get in line for new documents. If you have documents, if you have a U.S. passport, you can cross. The border's been shut down for 10 months now for just the, the regular Mexicans <clears throat> that have crossing documents that have like, uh, you know, visas for shopping or going to school or working in the U.S., uh, you know, because of, uh, you know, supposed COVID concerns. It's been shut down for 10 months. But um, they, they during the Trump administration, the line for people making applications has completely, uh, there, there is no more, there, there is no no more processing and, and Biden starting that again. If, if I can flash back to when I was a kid, I was born in- Sheriff, I wish Dallas. we could, but we're running out of time. We're going to have to do an entire peace episode a Peace Radicals episode on immigration. It's a big topic, and we need to cover it thoroughly. I've got so many more questions for yeah, the Sheriff. Yeah, yeah, we need to have him back for sure. Yeah. Sheriff, it's okay. been awesome having you on the podcast, man. I really, really enjoyed it. I know uh, our listeners did, too. want to let the listeners know how they can find out more about uh, us and our movement, the Live and Let Live movement. Um, everybody should go and check it out, www.liveandletlive.org. 
um, to get episodes of this podcast and also to uh, stay up to date with the movement. We're going to be having lots of big things over the next uh, few years as we get this thing off the ground, from conferences to talks to all uh, we, all manner of... we got new chapters starting. Yeah. we got all kinds of things going on in different parts of the world. We should do an update maybe on the next Peace Radicals show. But Sheriff, thanks so much, and thanks for everything you do. Uh, just listening to you has been so inspiring to know that there is at least one elected official out there at the moment. And I think there's probably a lot more who really espouse and understand the live and let live principle. I'm just thrilled that we got the highest elected law enforcement official in the county to say that taxation is robbery on our uh, podcast. And he almost fell good. off his chair. <laughs> he almost fell off his chair when you said that, Sheriff. So kudos to you. And Sheriff, in case yeah. anybody wants to get a hold of you, why don't you give some contact information? The easiest way is my email. I have a real easy email. It's just sheriffdavidhathaway at gmail.com, and you can give that out to anybody. Awesome. And Hathaway is H-A-T-H-A-W-A-Y. All right. Thanks again, okay, Sheriff. Well, we appreciate it. Thank you very much, Mark and Andy. It's been fantastic. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Once again, www.liveandletlive.org or check out attorneysforfreedom.com. Shoot us an email, Andy or Mark, M-A-R-C, at attorneysforfreedom.com. Send us your questions. We love taking them. This has been the Peace Radicals Show. Peace. Peace.